Welcome to Realty Talk, the show that brings together the country's most authoritative and respected property experts. Follow us on all the socials and subscribe for updates and exclusive offers. Realty Talk is powered by realty.com.au, connecting buyers, sellers and agents differently. Greetings and welcome to Realty Talk, your go-to place for all things property. I'm Bushy Martin from Know How Property Finance and we've got some great info to share with you in this week's show. We kick things off with what appears to be a taper tantrum as Eliza Owen from CoreLogic downloads the outcome and insights from the latest Home Value Index report. Josh Masters from Buyside Buyers Agents then joins us to answer the common question, should you buy two cheapies or one expensive property? And to complete the show, I continue our special series on the art of negotiation, where I cover the importance of research and focusing on the right metrics, along with recognition that negotiation starts at hello. We've got a lot of great insights to unpack, so let's get on with the show. Greetings and welcome. Now, in last month's CoreLogic Home Value Index report, we saw the Australian housing boom continued to rise by about 1.5% to achieve a broad-based national annual rise of about 18.4% with early signs of what I like to call a taper tantrum starting to emerge as the rate of growth starts to slow. So what's changed and what's continuing to happen with residential property across Australia? And what does this mean to you as a property owner, a buyer or a seller? Well, to find out, we're joined again by Realty Talk favourite Eliza Owen, who's the Head of Residential Research with CoreLogic, to reveal the outcome of October's Home Value Index. So welcome back to the show, Eliza. Thank you for having me again. Great to be here. Yeah, always love uh, digging into your wealth of wisdom. So uh, can you kick off by giving us a bit of a rundown on what the latest Home Value Index is telling us uh, in terms of also what's changed, if anything, from recent months, if you don't mind? Yeah, so we did see another increase of around 1.5% in the month of October. It was a couple of basis points lower than the previous month. And what's really interesting about the rate of growth we've seen over October is that if you look at that compared to, say, the previous decade average monthly movement of property values, it's very strong. The longer term decade average monthly movement is just 0.4%. But for the current upswing we're going through, it's actually the lowest monthly appreciation we've seen since January. So I think Taper tantrum is a really good way <laughs> to uh, to describe it. Uh, we are seeing a slowdown in the appreciation of values, but it's still a very robust performance compared to you know what we've seen historically. And in annual terms, uh, property values across Australia were up over twenty percent uh, in the twelve months to uh, September. So. All in all, I mean, that's the highest rate of appreciation we've seen annually since 1989. Um, It's it's really extraordinary. And as you say, it continues to be a broad-based increase. Every uh, capital city and rest of state region had seen an increase uh, over the month. Uh, Across the capital cities, that ranged from 2.3% in Hobart um, to an uplift of just 0.1% in Darwin. Yeah, interesting. And the, the spread in between. So uh, 
if, if we sort of fill in the gaps between those two, uh, and I sort of wouldn't mind your commentary around capitals versus regional and, and property types for that matter, uh, what, what's it telling you? So if we look at the broader cyclical pattern of what happened across regional Australia and the capital cities, the start of this upswing, so from around uh, you know, late 2020, early 2021, the uh, regional market was definitely outperforming. There was some subdued growth going on while capital city markets were falling in value. What we're starting to see now is that there's really been, there has been a narrowing in that performance. Um, in annual terms, regional still just outperforming. So if we look at the annual regional appreciation, it's 23% over the past 12 months um, compared to a 19.5% uplift in the capital cities. Um, but that monthly growth rate is now pretty narrow as well. Over the month of September, regionals just eclipsed the capitals with an uplift of 1.7% compared to 1.5% across the capitals. Um, so I think what's really happening there is that you have uh, less volatility in regional Australia more generally, which meant that the downswing initially at the onset of COVID wasn't really very severe. Um, that regional market has been buoyed by low interest rates. It's been buoyed by favourable internal migration patterns. But ultimately, the I think confidence that's come back to the property market has really buoyed the capital city market again. That capital city market is a little more volatile, so it's shown a very sharp uh, kind of increase um, since late uh, 2020. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it represents a lot more bullishness in capital cities as well. In, and that confidence of the restoration of economic activity in CBDs in a kind of post-COVID environment. Yeah, interesting. So, I um, mean, I guess the the regional areas are coming off a much lower cost base. So it's much easier to get 23% in a region versus a much higher priced uh, capital city. But with only a 4% differential between the two, that, that's still a pretty strong indicator that there's across the board confidence in that regard. Yeah, 100%. I mean, if we look at markets within the capitals and within regionals, I think that's where you see a little more divergence. So if you take New South Wales, for example, the high-end um, coastal markets of, you know, Richmond, Tweed, um, or even those lifestyle markets of like Southern Highland and Shoalhaven, those are markets that have seen uplifts of over 30% in value over the past 12 months. Wow. Um, and where you start to see the bigger differential is in, say, the Riverina or markets that are sort of further afield where they've had kind of softer annual performance. But even then, it's still double-digit growth of, you know, around 11%. So, um, yeah, it's it's really been interesting to see that when it comes to the regions, the coastal high-end lifestyle is kind of the winner. And it's the same with the capital cities as well, the northern beaches, the central coast, the Mornington Peninsula, the Sunshine Coast, the Gold Coast. These are your kind of um, top performers that we've seen over the past 12 months. Yeah, so the, the exodus to lifestyle that has got a lot of coverage in recent times, uh, is that is that uh, you think going to be an ongoing exercise, given that what you're saying now is that the capitals have caught up to some degree, is that sort of sort of starting to level itself out? I think that's actually a really good way to characterise it. it. It maybe doesn't matter as much whether it's regional or city, but it is the lifestyle in, in either setting um, that has been the most pursued. 
Um, and that's also translated to the biggest gains at kind of the high end of the market. So the top 25% of values is generally seeing the strongest gains. As we're starting to see growth taper off a little bit, the fastest decline in growth rates is also coming from the high end. Um, so the lower to middle tier of the market tends to be more stable over the course of the cycle, whereas at the top end of the combined capital cities, you know, there was this pretty much a 10% increase in the top 25% of values in the three oh. months to May. That's now slowed to about 5.4% at the high end of the market. So it's it's still going very strong, but it's kind of seeing the fastest rate of deceleration, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course. And there the may be some affordability challenges there as well, I'm guessing. A hundred percent. I mean, Sydney's uh, typical house price is now sitting at $1.3 million. If we look at Melbourne and Canberra, their typical house prices are sitting at about 960000 So they're not far off the million dollar mark either. And all of that translates to, uh, you know, more and more buyers not being able to keep up with those price points. So that's kind of naturally taking some heat out of the market as well. Yeah, interesting. The, uh, I guess the surprising outlier is Hobart because Hobart's already enjoyed very strong growth over the last five years or so, uh, and yet it continues to be uh, you know, top of the pops. What, what's your read on the ongoing sustainability of Hobart? Look, I think long, long term, it is um, a market that has so much opportunity, um, both in that it has these tailwinds around, you know, domestic tourism, even as a climate refuge. You know, there's been research around recent migration to Tasmania and Hobart, and people have actually cited the cooler climate as, as a reason for moving there. And I think if you think about the trajectory of climate change and, and how that kind of threatens to heat up a lot of environments in, in mainland Australia, um, that's got to be a, a significant tailwind for, for Hobart. Um, the levels of supply delivered across the market have increased in recent months, but historically it just hasn't really kept up with, with um, demand. Um, and, you know, even though prices have gone up significantly, I think the typical unit value across Hobart is almost matching that of Canberra now. But um, it, for people on those higher incomes who now have more normalisation and freedom around remote work, it's still a relatively affordable market. The challenge is for locals there, I think, who would be really struggling to keep up with increasing rental costs and the kind of influx of short-term accommodations like Airbnb that have crowded out the rental space a little bit as well. Yeah, very good point. Uh, before we talk about rentals, because I'd like to dig in there as well, uh, uh, up until now with, with previous indexes, we've seen quite a divergence between houses and units. Uh, has there been any change in inflection in what's happening uh, with the comparison of those two different classes? Oh, yeah. So that's quite right. Um, in the past 12 months, we've seen an uplift of over 20% in house values, essentially, and it's been closer to 10% in, in unit values. That's really quite a, a two-tiered um, performance that we've seen across the housing market. 
The differential between house and unit growth hasn't really been as existent in regional Australia, presumably because unit supply would be less, um, yeah. there'd be less supply of, of units across the regions, basically. Yeah. And also because units in regional Australia may be more popular with the types of people that are buying there. So downsizers, retirees, right? They might be after something more low maintenance, um, closer to the water, something like that. We are still seeing, however, a pretty big um, differential between house and unit performance across the capital cities. And I think that that would, um, that's largely weighed down by the inner city rental markets that have been so impacted by overseas migration and the closure of international borders. Yeah, very good point. Well, great segue into the discussion around rentals. Uh, how are rents and, and rental yields faring? They're two different things, but let, let's cover both of those off, you don't mind. Yeah, very good point. So it's important to note that rent values have seen very strong growth across the board. At the national level, rent values have increased 8.9% over the 12 months to September. Oh. Now, that might not sound like a lot when you think about, you know, a 20% increase in house values, um, but it's very strong for the rental market. Uh, it's the highest annual appreciation we've seen, I think, since 2008. Um, and the rental market performance had been subdued for quite a long time before that because the 2012 to 2019 cycle was very characterized by high investor participation. So we did really see a big overhang of unit supply coming out of that cycle. Um, and that sort of helped to subdue rents over that period. Then you get the COVID shock, which of course creates this initial downturn in inner city, Sydney, Melbourne, and um, to an extent Hobart. Um, it, Hobart's completely recovered. Rents are now at a record high. Um, Melbourne and Sydney are still seeing softer conditions, particularly across the unit segment. Uh, and I think with renewed lockdowns, you know, they were sort of recovering, but with the renewed lockdown conditions, we have started to see a little more weakness in um, some of those inner city markets now as well. And I think until we get more normalised international travel, we're not going to see a full recovery in those rental markets necessarily for, for the unit segment. Yeah, no, good call. So, uh Overall, what's your read on what's behind the slowing growth conditions that you're now starting to see? Well, there are multiple headwinds that are kind of in place for the property market now. And I think you touched on affordability being the big one. Um, that's probably the biggest explanation for, for why growth rates are starting to taper now. But I think there are other things to be looking out for. We've heard a lot of talk recently about potential macroprudential measures being introduced either in the next few months or potentially early next year. There's also what a post-COVID environment looks like. Are households still going to be accumulating lots of savings to put towards housing or are we going to see that reversion to more short-term consumption um, that, that might actually take some heat out of the housing demand as well? Um, and finally, stock levels. You know, I think the spring selling season can start in earnest now because um, restrictions are, are easing. Uh, we're starting to see a little bit of a lift in new listings. And even though supply on the market remains quite tight, that could at least start to ease the dynamics in some markets with buyers having more choice. 
Yeah, good call. Well, you touched on that as well. Just expanding on the the impact that you're seeing continuing rolling random COVID lockdowns. Mm. Uh, what what impact are, are they having and, and are likely to have on property performance as you see it? Lockdown conditions have pretty reliably created a concurrent decline in supply and demand. So yeah, not as many people are out buying properties during lockdowns. But because of all the protective measures that have been in place for households, supporting their mortgage repayments, deferring their mortgage repayments, we haven't seen an influx of supply during lockdowns either. So with both supply and demand falling during lockdown conditions, the net effect on prices is pretty marginal. And in fact, because of the low interest rate environment and greater levels of adaptability to an online buying and selling platform, we've actually seen property prices continue to rise across Sydney, Melbourne and the ACT where lockdowns have been in play. And we're even seeing sales and listings volumes being a little more resilient through lockdown periods as well. So I think when your demand conditions are strong enough, there's not a lot that can stop (laughs) the housing market, (laughs) even during lockdowns. Yeah, good call. Very good call. Now, just out of interest, uh, last month's CoreLogic uh, report withheld the Perth and Regional WA Index results pending the resolution of a divergence from other housing market measurements in WA. Can you sort of expand a little bit more on on that subject for us? Sure. So in August, we discovered a divergence between the home value indices for Western Australia and other measures that we use to track the market. So things like the um, change in the median value across the region or, um, the, you know, stratified sale price indices and things like that. So when we noticed that divergence, we kicked off an investigation straight away to understand what was causing it. And then over September, we were working really hard to identify, you know, between the data collection, cleansing, um, the analytics layer on top, what the issue was, um, we got a fix in place and now we're able to report the WA indices. So all of that was re-released for October. We've refreshed the back series and we've implemented a permanent fix going forward. Um, So yeah, I guess, you know, accuracy is everything, but so is taking ownership, (laughs) Um, which is why we've, we've worked really hard to get that fix in place over the month of September. Yeah, brilliant. Well, uh, as always, Eliza, you've given us a great snapshot of what's happening around the country. So uh, thanks for taking the time and giving us your generous time on the show today. Not at all. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So, well, if if you want to get your head around what's happening in property, make sure you grab yourself a copy of CoreLogic's Hedonic Home Value Index as property boom times continue in most parts of the country. Keep watching for more here on Realty Talk. Property deductions can save you thousands of dollars each year. To make sure you maximise deductions, you need to work with the most experienced quantity surveyor in the country. BMT Tax Depreciation is the leading specialist in the industry. They've completed over 700,000 tax deduction schedules for residential investment and commercial properties Australia-wide. BMT guarantee to find double your fee in the first full financial year deductions. Call BMT on 1300 728 726 today for an obligation-free quote. Hi and welcome. Now, at a time when property markets are going crazy and there's been a significant post-COVID shift from CBD concentration to regional decentralisation, 
for those that are chasing lifestyle, safety, and security. One of the common questions we hear from prospective investors revolves around whether it's better to buy one high-value property or to split your capacity to secure two or more. So to discuss the ins and outs of this conundrum, we're joined by leading buyer's agent, Josh Masters from Buyside. Welcome back to the show, Josh. Thanks, Bushy. Thanks for having me. Always, mate. Now, Josh, what are the pros and cons of buying one higher value property versus splitting the budget to secure two or more? Yeah, this is definitely a question I get asked a lot uh, by my clients uh, when we're going out there to, to purchase investment properties. Uh, I think with the the being able to split properties into two, for example, if you've got a, a, an $800,000 budget and you want to buy two at $400,000, obviously there's this diversification aspect to it. Just like when you buy shares, rather than putting everything into BHP, you know, you get to buy multiple shares. And over time, depending on what the market's doing, some could be performing better than others at any time. And hopefully over the long term, both will come out in front without the risk of having everything in one basket. Uh, also, when I'm dealing with clients, I always like to take stock of what their portfolio looks like because we've got land tax thresholds that we want to avoid. So if you've bought a lot in, say, New South Wales or potentially Queensland, you want to make sure that you don't hit that land tax threshold and you want to be purchasing in alternative states because that can take a real hit to the budget over time. Of course, sometimes you'd say, well, you know, these cheaper properties, they're cheap for a reason. And often we can find that if we're buying something that's more expensive, we'll get a better quality tenant and hopefully a better quality property that won't incur so much maintenance over time. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, no, it's a, it is a bit of a conundrum. So if investors split their budget, will they achieve the same outcome with the benefit of diversification, do you think? Well, they definitely will get diversification, but it really depends on the performance of those properties and those areas. I always like to say it's the area that will outperform uh, rather than the property itself. You know, the, the rising tide lifts all ships, so to speak. But it can depend on what those areas are doing. For example, you might look at somewhere in, uh, you know, the, the Brisbane area looking to take advantage of the Olympics. Uh, then you also might be looking at somewhere in regional Victoria looking to take advantage of, uh, you know, the Melbourne exodus and the proximity to Melbourne from some of those satellite regional centres that are doing quite well, like Geelong, Ballarat, Bendigo, et cetera, that are very strong in employment, transportation links, uh, employment nodes, et cetera, and being able to diversify across both of those. But which one will come out in front and will they both perform over time? We don't have a crystal ball. You definitely get the diversification, but you know, even we've spoken on the show about how this, these property markets will perform in, in Brisbane in reaction to the Olympics. And look, the, the, the jury may be out, but the research certainly shows that it may not be performing as much as people may think. Yeah, it's a, it's exactly right. It's uh, there's a little bit more to it than than just the the price of the property is going to determine its performance, and 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 that's where the sort of science that you apply to the process starts to make the difference between a, a performer and a non-performer. But uh, tell me, from from that bu budget perspective, is there a budget that's too low or too high where it's not worth worth considering splitting? Yeah, good question. And look, let me couple, cover uh, one thing in, in the middle of that um, that low point and the high point. I don't necessarily buy into the um, the adage that you know buying a what we call a, a 
a blue chip suburb uh, will necessarily be a better performer than than the others. Um, what we do know is that you know buying in somewhere like let's take um, you know Sydney's lower North Shore for example, it will perform well over time. I wouldn't say consistently, but you know at a six or seven percent growth rate, that will certainly outperform some of the regional centres that we've seen over the last ten or twenty years. No question. Yep. However, there are very good reasons to be buying at the lower end. And what I could call a lower end is probably, you know, your, your 350 to 400 minimum plus, yep. um, where they really have good grounds for infrastructure spending, um, proximity to employment, transportation links going in, you know, all of these things that make solid fundamentals for, for growth drivers happening in those areas that you can rely on. Now, just because it's cheap doesn't make it good. And, you know, there's a lot of areas out there that, uh, for example, I would say uh, maybe in the Western Australian market, which ride very closely to the iron ore price. Now, iron ore attached to mining, um, you know, went through the doldrums around 2015, 2016, and only recently peaked at around 220 in July. However, now that's come down to 125, and that's only happened in the last couple of months. So how will the markets react? So you've got to know why you're getting into these areas. It can't be just because you know it's had good performance. You've got to understand the reason why. It's not just attached to the iron ore price. It's got to have the drivers behind it. It's got to have the government spending uh, that will push that forward. However, yeah. I do think that there is a price point you get to at the top end where it doesn't suit every client. And look, don't get me wrong, I have clients going in at $1.5 million, $1.8 million. And some of the best performers in the Sydney market, for example, are houses in the inner ring of you know the five to 10 kilometer radius. Yep. Now you buy there in a strong performing market and you can't beat it. You know, you've got eight to 9% you know, year on year growth and you've got a lot of money in the market. So your return over 10 years is gonna be exceptional, but the rental return could be quite poor. So it doesn't suit everybody. If you've got a little bit of cash to put out of your pocket, you know, every, every week or every year to make up the negative gearing component, then that's okay, but it's not for everybody. Yeah, and, and you, you, you make a very good point. It's, it's horses for courses. And it, it's it's really clear. It's it's not it's not really about the the price exercise. It's about we, we mentioned diversification in terms of uh, the, the property side. We also need diversification in terms of the economy, so that there you know there's a critical mass that's not reliant on one industry uh, for employment. Uh, you mentioned infrastructure, which is a, a very strong uh, future driver. So we want committed infrastructure that's not there yet, but that's going to go in. And we want strong and growing income so that the incomes, are, 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 as they grow, people can continue to pay more for properties in that location. So, uh, mate, uh, I love, always love chatting about these subjects with you, mate. Uh, really appreciate your balanced view on, on this, Josh. And, and thanks again for your time on the show today. Pleasure, Bushy. Thank you for having me, mate. Thanks, mate. Now, uh, the takeaway again is very clear here. Before you secure a property, reach out to an independent property strategist and a buyer's agent. And if you're wanting to know what's really happening with property around the country, subscribe to Buyside's monthly report at buyside.com.au. Stay with us.
here on Realty Talk. Property depreciation is the natural wear and tear of a building and its assets. Property investors can claim depreciation as a tax deduction each financial year. Depreciation is a non-cash deduction. This means you don't need to spend any money in order to claim it. On average, BMT tax depreciation find residential investors almost $9,000 in first full financial year deductions. Call BMT on 1300 728 726 today for an obligation-free quote. Hi and welcome. In this week's Bush Bite, we continue our special series on the art and science of negotiation. Given the critical importance of your ability to negotiate, especially in the current rapidly rising and hotly contested sellers market. Now, over the last few weeks, we've discussed how you need to change your outlook, to build rapport by using mirroring and labelling techniques, and to be aware of your perceived power position, which you may feel is tipped against you. And I also talked about why cash is king. Now, this week, we cover the importance of research and focusing on the right metrics, along with recognition that negotiation starts at hello. So based on our previous segments, I now assume that you have the right mindset, that uh, you've stacked as much as you can in your favour, including your finances. The next step is to ensure that you research and know the driving negotiation metrics of the area that you're actually looking to buy into. And there are two important metrics that you need to focus on. You need to know what the average days on market are and what the average vendor discount is in the particular area that you're looking to buy a property. Now, this is about determining if prevailing conditions create an environment that's a buyer's market, a seller's market, or a balanced market. Again, this is about understanding the perceived power position. If there are more sellers than buyers, then it's a buyer's market and you have much more leverage and power in the negotiation. If it's a balanced market, then there's an equal spread of buyers and sellers. And if it's a seller's market where there are few sellers and many buyers competing for a property, you need to work much harder, faster and smarter and potentially have to pay more for the property. This is exactly the situation that most popular parts of Australia are now in. So how do you use these two metrics? If properties have been on the market for a long time, as recorded in days on market, you know you've got good leverage in the negotiation. If you can see the market is moving quickly, meaning the days on market are short, you understand it's a seller's market, and so the negotiating position isn't with you as the buyer. A confirming indicator can be found by looking at the vendor discount rates. If you can see that they're taking large vendor discounts, the power's with the buyer. However, if there's little vendor discounting and it's a strong market, then you probably won't be grabbing a discount on the property price. In fact, the property could sell for more than the advertised price, which is exactly what's currently happening in lots of area around the country right now. By doing this, you're able to see the strong and healthy markets And it gives you an idea of exactly what sort of market conditions you're actually negotiating in, because it's about being prepared and realistic. And where can you find these metrics? Well, CoreLogic provides reports that you can pay for that give you weekly updates on these and other key metrics. Alternatively, you may be able to access them free if you're using a finance broker that has access to them, like our know-how property finance business. And many property strategists, websites, and buyers agents 
can also assist you with the same. Now, remember the old Tom Cruise movie, Jerry Maguire, where the heroine responded with, you had me at hello. Well, in a similar fashion, the next key thing to be aware of in a negotiation is that negotiation starts at hello. As soon as you say hello to a real estate agent, the negotiations begun. Now, experienced buyers know this and they know what to reveal and what to conceal. Remember that agents are expert negotiators who do this every day of the week. So as soon as they've seen you or started talking to you, they're sizing you up and they're asking you qualifying questions, even when it seems like they're just chatting casually about you and the family. Sales reps want to work out if you're a serious buyer first, and then they want to find out as much information as they can to craft a negotiation when it comes to that time. Now, don't be surprised if they suggest that you and your partner walk through and have a look at the property so they can then spend time chatting to your kids. Your kids don't know what's going on, and so it's not uncommon for a seasoned sales campaigner to ask your kids lots of leading questions. For example, are you thinking of moving or moving schools? And the kids are quite willing to give all the information, and the agent is banking on this for that later negotiation stage. The next thing to keep in mind is that when it comes to property, along with most other negotiations, smart is dumb and dumb is smart. This is a version of the old saying that when strong, act weak, and when weak, act strong. What I mean by this is you don't want to come across too smart or too clever when it comes to dealing with the selling agent or the owner because nobody ever wants to help a know-it-all. However, if a person comes across as warm, friendly, humble, down-to-earth and curious, most of us are happy to help them and give them more information. So when it comes to negotiating, you want to come across as dumb and friendly, which is probably something that I tick the box on, because the agent will feel more inclined to give you more information. Then if you're smart about hearing what they have to say, you might be able to get some key intel, which is going to help you to craft your offer. So in negotiations, keep your ego out of it. Remember, you've got two ears and one mouth, and you should use them in that proportion when you're negotiating. This means twice as much listening as talking. Wise people talk when they've got something to say, but fools talk because they have to say something. So to summarize the key points from today's session, on researching the right metrics and reinforcing that negotiation starts with hello, remember that there are two key metrics that buyers need to know when negotiating. Firstly, days on market, and secondly, the average vendor discount. And these tell you if you're in a buyer's, seller's, or balanced market. And as the old movie said, you had me at a low, reminds us that negotiation starts as soon as you start talking with a real estate agent. So be careful what you and your family reveal. And finally, you need to act dumb to be smart. In next week's negotiation special bushbite, we'll reveal how a knockout offer via an aggressive move might actually gazump the competition in the seller's market, along with an awareness that property negotiation is not just about price. That's more food for thought. I'm Bushy Martin from the Get Invested podcast. Stay tuned for more. Well, that brings us to the close of another show. A special thanks to our guests, Eliza Rowan and Josh Masters, 
And a reminder that you can see all of our shows at realty.com.au. And while you're there, check out one of Australia's most extensive range of properties for sale from over 7,000 agents nationally. Thanks again to realty.com.au and BMT Tax Depreciation for their ongoing support. I'm Bushy Martin from Know How Property Finance, and I look forward to seeing you again next week. Miss something in this week's show or want to catch up on past shows? Do it anytime at realty.com.au where we connect buyers, sellers and agents differently. 